to a special episode of the Mormon Visual Culture Podcast. I'm Eric Bigert, co-founder of the Zion Art Society. In addition to our regular interviews with artists and collectors and thinkers, uh, we're constantly coming across people and ideas that we think merit a wider discussion. So we're adding a short edition today of the podcast so that we could share those. This week, Micah Christensen was asked to give a, a private lecture to a group of people on the Mormon Pavilion at the World's Fair in 1964 that was held in Flushing Meadows, New York. Many people probably have heard about the Mormon Pavilion. Many of you may have even been to the Mormon Pavilion back then. But Michael was able to do a little research, and we want to share some of what we found uh, through that process. So Mike is here with me. Thank you. Thank you. I'm uh, pretty fresh on this because I was giving the lecture last night, and uh, uh, I hope I don't overshare but there were a, there was one idea that kept coming back to me as I was doing the lecture, and that was uh, there were in the instance of this World's Fair in 1964, which had far-reaching consequences for the church. It would not have been possible if it weren't for two Mormon Medici. Now, this is a term that we use all the time among ourselves. And uh, as we give lectures to the Zion Art Society, and I should probably explain what the Mormon Medici is. The yeah, Medici, Mormon Medici, or right. So, um, but if you speak of the Italian, it's the Medici. So the Medici um, were uh, a family of bankers in Florence in the 14th, 15th, and 16th century, even up into the 17th century, if you count Catherine de Medici in France, uh, who used their vast resources to fund many of the artists who uh, were known uh, as the, the, the Renaissance uh, founders and um, artists that dominated the Renaissance. Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, Botticelli, a number of artists that we owe the Medici, this family of bankers and patrons, um, for. And we have, I think, within our own culture, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, a number of Medici who have made it possible for us to enjoy uh, a lot of what we have. And they did it often outside of the normal structures of the Church. And within this event of the World's Fair of 1964, uh, there were two of them. Uh, Our first one was Stanley McAllister, a man I'd never heard of before. He was a stake president in New York. And uh, as a stake president in New York, during the city planning for the World's Fair, he brought to the attention of the brethren this idea of, we should do a pavilion. The World's Fair was a big deal. It started in the 19th century as the Universal Exhibitions. By the 20th century, they were calling them the World's Fair, and you would have these pavilions that were over several hundred acres. The one in New York was 650 acres. And um, you would have engineering, um, arts, religion that would all be displayed. And it was the idea of the latest technology, the latest ideas. The 1960 World's Fair, 64 World's Fair that we're talking about, um, it is where the Ford Mustang was debuted. Um, Anyone who's ever been to Disneyland and on a small world, uh, that was what it was created for the World's Fair and uh, Disneyland. Presented by Pepsi. Uh, presented by Pepsi. And it, it the, the title of the World's Fair was Peace Through Understanding. Now, the church had participated in other World's Fairs before, but this one 
was um, resource-wise and numbers-wise the biggest one that had ever happened or would uh, that did ever happen. Um, and uh, just to give you an idea of numbers, there were roughly 60 million people that visited the World's Fair in the one year that it took place. And that was over 10 times the population of New York City at the time. And many times the population of the church, you can imagine, by far. Um, And Stanley McAllister, who's the stake president, called the Brethren uh, in Salt Lake City, and he said, I think we need to be... we need to be involved in this pavilion. And they said, well, of course, let's do this. Why don't you mock it up? He comes to Salt Lake. He brings a scale model of some ideas that he has for it, working with a couple of church architects. And then he gives them the price tag. And the price tag was for these events. It was not only the reserving of it, but for this idea that he had of mocking up part of the temple in Salt Lake City's facade, over $3 million dollars. In 1964 money. 1964 money, which is, even now would be an enormous amount of money, but then it was an astronomical amount of money. And the brethren, out of hand because of price said, and it's understandable, said, um, I think we're going to pass on this one. But two years later, as it became clear that this World's Fair was going to be a huge opportunity, public relations-wise for the church, McAllister again called up the brethren, this time a direct call to President David O. McKay, and said, I think we need to do something about this. I don't know what was said in that phone call. There are um, different accounts of it. But in the end, the bottom line is is that President McAllister convinced David O. McKay to hold this event. And not only did they get a place— mostly because Robert Moses, who was the fair's director, was a friend of President McAllister, and Robert Moses was not a member of the church. He was able to finagle a place for the church to have it there. But um, leading up to it, after the church had made plans for this space, the space next to them became open. Do you remember, um, Eric, you'd done some research on this as to what it was that had fallen through? Yeah, it was just whatever company had leased out that space just kind of reneged on the deal. And the, the issue was it was right next to one of the main entrances. It was right next to where the subway station was. So Robert Moses was freaking out about uh, this idea that people are going to walk in and there's going to be just an empty venue as right. the first thing they see. They get off the subway. The yep. 60 million people get off the subway. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's nothing. And there's nothing there. So he went to the church to say, can you help us figure this out? Because it was the spot right adjacent. So it's amazing is that, first of all, they got a spot. And then the, the, the second miracle is that they were able to get the spot next to theirs, which happened to be the offloading zone from the New York Public Transit. Mm-hmm. for people to come, which meant that the church was able to greet a vast majority of the people coming to the conference and to give them their first initiation into the whole and, event. And for people on the way out of the event, because again, this is taking place over the summer, hmm. who were waiting for the subway to come, because it, I don't know, runs every 20, 30 minutes or something like that in those days. They wanted somewhere cool and air-conditioned and covered to sit and wait for the next train, because... You couldn't always fit everyone in line on each train. So they would congregate at the Mormon Pavilion and hang out inside the air-conditioned pavilion, which uh, had been staffed by volunteers and missionaries in the area. So I don't know if you knew this, but I found out in, in preparation for the, the lecture I was doing that my mother was a missionary during this. She had been uh, set apart as a musical performance missionary whose job it was 
in that area, the waiting area, to perform musical numbers. There were as many as 10,000 missionaries, which was almost the number of missionaries that were in the wider world at the time in the church, who were called specifically to perform at the World's Fair Mormon Pavilion. There's something else about that waiting area that I think you had said that was they were they they had planned um, for the exterior of the area that they originally had this incredible facade of that I think was to scale of the Salt Lake Temple with the angel Moroni at the top, the three spires, and then a reflecting pole plants around it. But they kind of had to come up last minute with plans for the garden area that was the waiting area where the public transport was coming on, was on and off. Yeah. And what did they do to fill that? that uh, space. So they had this whole empty spot that Robert Moses needed help filling and uh, he went to the church and they decided let's make this a garden. So essentially we're looking now the Mormon pavilion is becoming de facto Temple Square. It's even got missionaries on it like Temple Square. Apparently your mom was one of the Temple Square missionaries That's right. in this quasi proxy Temple Square in New York City. Yeah. But uh, they shipped flowers and plants from all over the world. They shipped things from California, from the Pacific Islands, and they kind of made a garden there. They utilized the stake, the membership of the church saying, Mm -hmm. going to their their stakes and saying, send us native plants. Yeah, and they planted them, and uh, I read somewhere that they were getting shipments of flowers every single day coming in from different stakes all across the world who were shipping in things to plant. So that now people are getting off the subway and they're greeted by a garden, which is a perfect place to congregate, to meet up with the other people that you're going to the fair with that day. And it became kind of the ideal lobby area for the fair. And then the first thing you see after that is the Mormon Pavilion. Okay, so just to talk about the impact of of this, this Mormon Pavilion and the decision to be there, as I said, about 60 million people came through. And... There's a lot of data on what impact it had immediately on the church. There were over 225,000 referrals that came over that year. Back then, they sold a, a special edition copy of the Book of Mormon at the Mormon Pavilion, and um, it, it, it uh, and they sold it just for the cost of the printing. That, they sold 92,000 copies, and it revolutionized the way that missionary work was done. You can see almost these breathless accounts that took place in the Improvement Era in the Desert News saying, we are now having experiences with people who have been to the Mormon Pavilion, missionaries are meeting with them, and, and we don't have to go through awkward conversations explaining who we are, because they know from having visited the Mormon Pavilion. One account that I read from a 1974... Um, doctoral thesis that was done at uh, at BYU in the theology department, um, and I'll put the reference on the website, um, calculated that over um, 300,000 baptisms had happened as the result of it between the 1964 fair and the 1974 thesis that this this gentleman had done. Mm -hmm. Which means... If you are President Stanley McAllister, your efforts as a Medici outside of the structure of the church's hierarchy in making a decision to call up not only once and say, I've got a plan and mock it up, but then to be deterred by it, but then to come back a second time and say, look, and then leverage his personal connections with Robert Moses to make this happen was an enormous payoff, not only in terms of the public relation image of the church, 
but also in terms of the actual of actual converts. And that, this is that this is what the church does best, right? We mobilize members on the ground level. Right. We make big things happen because of a few people who are earnestly involved in something. Right. Anxiously engaged, I think is the proper term. <laughs> right. And we are able to pull off things like shipping flowers from all over the world and building a scale replica of the Salt Lake Temple in New York and putting on this whole effort by local members and just yeah. the complete grassroots effort. This you, is what we're good at. You had a flood, you had an earthquake, you've got an empty subway platform. Yep. Call, call, the, call the home teachers. Call the home teachers. Call the home teachers. Yeah. Now I'd like to talk about the second Mormon Medici, which is con- who is connected to this effort. And it's, um, it's, uh, it, it, it's Elder Stephen L. Richards of the Quorum of the Twelve. And, and here is how he was involved also in this effort. If you went into—we've talked about the outside of the pavilion. If you walked into the Mormon pavilion of the 1964 World's Fair, the first thing you would see was an 11-foot-tall marble replica of the Christus statue. We now have a version of that on the Temple Square. It was done originally by Bethel Torvaldsen in the 1820s. Torvaldsen was a Danish sculptor um, who was uh, a proponent of neoclassicism, and his work, he was an international star in the 19th century. And I think we're all familiar with the sculpture. It has Christ, uh, the resurrected Christ, with his outreached hands. Um, And I had assumed, you know, being an art historian, I'd kind of come up with my own stories how we'd arrived at. I know that in the 19th century, there was a large number of Danish converts to the church, and I assumed that we had gotten that Christus statue as a result of Danish remembrance and cultural cross-pollination from them being familiar with it. But the story was a lot more interesting than that. In 1912, um, President Joseph F. Smith asked Stephen L. Richards, who was then a member of the Sunday School General Superintendency, they didn't call it presidency at the time, to investigate how they could decorate the cemetery in Salt Lake City. And at that time, if you go to the cemetery in Salt Lake City, where a lot of the early presidents of the church are, baptized, are, are, are buried, you can see that there are obelisks and stone monuments and so forth. It's something we don't really focus on today, but at that time, they, they decorated it, and they, appro- they approached Stephen L. Richards with this project. Of we, it, it's of making it a beautiful gathering place. So he, he went to various famous cemeteries. In the 19th century, this is really a thing. Some of the greatest sculptures in the 19th century, Augusta St. Gaudens and, and uh, uh, um, Rodin, did cemetery work. So Richards goes to Forest Lawn Cemetery in Glendale, California, and he becomes friends with the owner and founder, Hubert Eaton. And if anybody's ever been to Forest Lawn, the one that I'm most familiar with is in Hollywood. But there, the, the original one was in Glendale. And in all the subsequent, ver- subsequent versions of Forest Lawn, there are artistic monuments throughout yeah, it's, the whole park. It's huge. It's basically a gigantic hillside. And there's, there's little niches carved out where this is the Catholic section and this is the Jews section. And, you have so Jewish yeah. family so buried in my, Glendale, right? My grandparents are both cremated and their remains are in a, a wall there for Jewish Los Angeles residents <laughs> that have passed on. But the place yeah. is absolutely massive. Griffith Park is the largest park in the country and it's 
probably half of the size of Griffith Park right there adjacent to it in Los Angeles. You can see it from the freeway. Huh. If you're ever huh. on the 101, look to the side, and if you see a giant grassy hill, that's Forest that's Lawn where it Cemetery. Is. That's Forest Lawn. Okay. If you go there, um, you can see that they have replicas of many statues, not just the Christus, but Richard sees the Christus there, kind of files it in his memory banks, and in the meantime, plans for redoing the cemetery in Salt Lake fall away. Richards goes with his family in 1950 to Copenhagen, and they see the original Christus in the Our Lady uh, of the Lord Church, which is in Copenhagen, and uh, they have a spiritual experience there that he recounted to his children. He um, He's then on a planning committee for the church that is creating the first visitor center in the 1950s on Temple Square. And part of the discussion at the time was... We don't have a single representation of Christ on Temple Square. And you wouldn't think now that that was a controversial issue, but there was really a discussion about how do we handle representations of Christ in the church? Do we want to come across as if we are worshiping the statue? Do we want to... What, what, what kind of statue? What is the nature of it? We'd already had some. Mahan Rai Young had been commissioned to do sculptures of Joseph Smith and of uh, Oliver Cowdery had had a sculpture with Joseph Smith receiving the priesthood that was done by Fairbanks, uh, Avar Fairbanks. But these sculptures were historical in nature as kind of um, what, what we would call almost, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, Eric? Dioramas. Yeah. They're almost like historical yeah. dioramas, What is the right? context we're putting this in? Right. And so to have an, a statue of Christ was altogether different because it wasn't, the idea is that we needed to emphasize that we're not so much the Mormons as we are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which was an issue they were dealing with a lot as the Church became larger and more of a public figure. So Elder Richards and his wife, in this process, he talks to his friend, Hubert Eaton, who's in charge of Forest Lawn, asks for permission to cast and send a cast, just a fiberglass cast of that, to Italy, to the workshops that are working outside of Carrera, Italy, where the marble is. And he privately commissions with his own funds, not the church funds. This is Medici that we're talking about, a Medici effort. With his own funds, commissions the 11-foot-tall statue of Christ, pays for it to be brought back to the United States, and it goes into storage at the church where he anonymously donates it not as an, as Elder Richards. So I, I love the idea that as an apostle even, because at this point he was an apostle, he decides, I'm not going to use my position as, a, as, as a, one of the apostles to get this work of art that I have a particular interest in into the dialogue. Instead, I am going to donate it anonymously. Mm -hmm. And that's what he does. And it doesn't get used as part of the visitor center immediately. It isn't until he connects up with um, the stake president, Stanley McAllister, and they decide that they're going to use it as the centerpiece on the uh, in the Mormon Pavilion interior. And that's where the tour started. If you went to the Mormon Pavilion, you would have as your first stop on the tour through the Mormon Pavilion in front of Torvaldsen's Christus, the statue that was commissioned privately by Elder Richards. And they would talk about 
being the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and then they used four scriptures on each of four, each of the sides of the base. The first scripture was from Genesis. The second one was from the book of Ether. The third one was from the Doctrine and Covenants, and the fourth one was from the book of Moses. So they got the entire quad in there, right? All the the, the whole all the scriptures, and then that took us on the tour to Christ creating the world, commissioning the uh, the uh, uh, apostles to go out and preach to the world, and it began what was when I was a missionary. The structure for the six discussions, which have been different numbers of discussions over the years. Sometimes they're eight, sometimes they were nine. But even the format for how we talked as missionaries was started at the Mormon Pavilion with the starting with Christ, and we believe in Christ, the role of prophets, apostles, the creation of the world, and then modern-day prophets. The artwork that, that came out of that, we'll have to do another podcast on. But for the tense of this short discussion we're having, and what occurred to me as I was talking last night to this group of people, was that um, here we have two individuals who fell outside the typical standard uh, structure of the church. And I want to be careful I say this, because I'm not trying to encourage a bunch of renegades by saying this, or saying that that people out... that, that uh, you know, go out there and change change what the church is doing. I'm, that's not what I'm saying Start at all. Start buying statues and donating no, no. them anonymously. No, sustain your local and and uh, and and, and uh, general uh, church leaders. I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying that there are these moments that push us ahead as a people that happen outside of the typical structure. It's true of the church. It's true of other organizations. And these individuals, Stanley McAllister. Stephen Richards, they went outside and became Medici. They had ideas that um, were not, they had a vision that wasn't readily acceptable. And it says a lot about the church, in fact, that timing was not right initially for either one of them. But then when the church did, when the timing was right, these people had, and their ideas provided the structure that the church used for then its ideas. And, and, and we're the beneficiaries of it today. Yeah. And so this year, as we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of a gospel vision of the arts, when President Kimball declared that one day we will have a Mormon Michelangelo and a Mormon Da Vinci and Shakespeare. And Sha- and yeah. Um, one of the points that we're making is these people don't exist in a vacuum. Michelangelo did not exist in a vacuum. He did not exist on his own. He existed because he had the Medici to help him along the path. Um, and in this case, Elder Richards and uh, uh, President McAllister. McAllister were those people. They were able to make the difference and uh, and bring us a little step further uh, along the path of what Elder Kimball was prophesying. Absolutely. Well, thank you for uh, letting me take a moment to talk about that, Eric. And, uh, and, and I should say that a lot of this research um, that that uh, was done for this private lecture that I gave that we've been talking about um, came from Eric's uh, from Eric's work too. So uh, so thank you for that. Again, this has been a special edition of the Mormon Visual Culture Podcast. We'll be back in your feed soon with another uh, interview. But check back for uh, editions just like this in the future. And uh, thank you for listening. 